From New York, this is Democracy Now! The Supreme Court guts affirmative action, ruling Harvard and the University of North Carolina's programs considering race and college admissions are unconstitutional, but allows military academies to continue using affirmative action. We'll get response from the NAACP, from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Mariana Rosa, and Professor Janelle Wong, who says affirmative action isn't hurting Asian Americans, but the myth survives. Today, the Supreme Court issues two more decisions on student debt and whether businesses with religious objections can refuse to offer their services for same-sex weddings. This would be the first time in the court's history, correct, that it would say that a business open to the public, that it could refuse to serve a customer based on race, sex, religion, uh, or sexual orientation, correct? Yes. We'll look at how both the cases brought by right-wing groups are based on questionable evidence. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.S. Supreme Court has declared race-conscious admissions policies at colleges and universities across the U.S. to be unlawful. Thursday's landmark 6-3 ruling by the court's conservative majority upends decades of precedent, allowing affirmative action in college admissions. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts assailed race-conscious admissions at Harvard and the University of North Carolina as elusive, imponderable and opaque, ruling they violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The court stopped short of barring legacy admissions or ending affirmative action in military academies. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, the court's first black woman justice, wrote in a dissenting opinion, quote, with let-them-eat-cake obliviousness, today the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat, unquote. After headlines, will host a roundtable discussion on the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action. In California, a state task force has released its final report proposing reparations for the harms done to black families due to slavery, segregation and racial discrimination. The panel's asking California lawmakers and Governor Gavin Newsom to approve monetary compensation to black residents for mass incarceration, racist policing, housing discrimination, health care inequalities and environmental racism. Cheryl Grills, a member of the California Reparations Task Force, noted the report was released Thursday morning, just as the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action. I would encourage the Supreme Court to read the interim report. I would encourage them to read the final report and to understand that the legacy of enslavement, the ongoing harms, are with us to this very day. And so this country is disingenuous. First, they used race to exclude us. And now they're refusing to use race to include us. 
The wife of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito leased land to a fossil fuel company for oil and gas exploration. Around the same time, the firm stood to benefit from a major environmental case before the Supreme Court. The Intercept reports Justice Alito did not recuse himself from the case, even though his family stood to profit from its outcome. Alito ended up writing the 5 to 4 majority opinion in Sackett versus Environmental Protection Agency, which gutted protections for U.S. wetlands under the Clean Water Act. At the time, Martha Ann Baumgartner Alito, his wife, had an agreement with the firm Citizen Energy 3 to earn revenue from any oil and gas produced on her land in Oklahoma, which she inherited from her late father. This follows the bombshell report in ProPublica that found Justice Alito took an undisclosed luxury fishing vacation with Republican mega-donor Paul Singer in 2008, then later ruled in Singer's favor in several cases. Singer is a major donor to the Manhattan Institute, a Republican think tank that supports blocking student debt relief. Members of the Debt Collective had demanded Alito recuse himself from today's Supreme Court ruling on President Biden's plan to give $40 million million student borrowers up to $20,000 each in debt relief. We'll have more on student debt and the Supreme Court later in the broadcast. Mexico's health ministry says at least 112 people have died in the past two weeks as an unprecedented heat wave drove temperatures as high as 50 degrees Celsius or more than 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Residents of Monterrey say they've been forced to limit their time outdoors. I work in construction and it's really bad. We hydrate with water and rest for 15 minutes and then we go back to work again. We do that every hour. Stifling heat and humidity are continuing across Texas and southeastern states, where officials say extreme temperatures have killed at least 14 people. Farther north, more than 100 million people are under air quality alerts again today as thick smoke from Canadian wildfires drifts east. Detroit, Washington, D.C. and New York City ranked among the six worst cities in the world for air quality this morning, though forecasters predict some relief from hazardous air air over the July 4th holiday weekend. Former Vice President, 2024 Republican presidential hopeful Mike Pence, made a surprise visit to Ukraine Thursday, meeting in Kyiv with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Pence's visit comes after Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and other Republican candidates suggested scaling back or halting U.S. aid to Ukraine. Pence said, unlike his rivals, he would ensure the continued flow of weapons and ammunition. Because we'll make it clear to Russia to China and to any other nations in the world that would seek to redraw international lines by force. That the free world will not stand for it. The free world will stand together for freedom. CNN reports the Biden administration strongly considering approving the transfer of cluster munition warheads to Ukraine. The weapons are banned under the Convention on Cluster Munitions, which has been signed by U.S. allies, including the U.K., France and Germany. Ukraine, Russia and the United States never signed the treaty. Meanwhile, Human Rights Watch reports it's uncovered new evidence of Ukraine's indiscriminate use of banned anti-personnel landmines. Russia's also laid mines, killing and injuring civilians. Unlike Russia, Ukraine is a signatory to the 1997 Ottawa Treaty, which comprehensively bans anti-personnel mines. All 31 NATO member states have signed the treaty, except the United States. 
in France. Over 400 people were arrested Thursday as thousands of protesters took to the streets nationwide for a third consecutive day, angered by the police killing of 17-year-old Nahelem. French riot police were deployed in multiple cities with violent clashes reported in the Parisian suburb of Nanterre, Nahel's hometown, and where he was fatally shot Tuesday after being pulled over for allegedly breaking traffic rules. Nahel was an only child of Algerian and Moroccan descent who was raised by a single mother. He worked as a delivery driver and was described by his grandmother as a good, kind boy. This is Karim Akatim, a local official from the Parisian suburb of Le Bon Mesnil. Young Nael, his honor was saved thanks to the camera. If the cameras hadn't been there to record, one could have manipulated his profile. Oh, he's already had trouble with the police in the past. Oh, his background is a bit sketchy. No, this is a 17-year-old young man who was killed by police. That should be recognized. In the United Kingdom, a court has ruled the British government's plan to deport certain asylum seekers to Rwanda, though they're not from there, is illegal under national and international law. The decision Thursday overturned a previous ruling from December that was widely condemned by human rights advocates. This is British Judge Ian Burnett. There is a real risk that persons sent to Rwanda will be returned to their home countries where they faced persecution or other inhumane treatment when, in fact, they have a good claim for asylum. In that sense, Rwanda is not a safe third country. In Iraq, hundreds of protesters briefly stormed the Swedish embassy in Baghdad Thursday in response to the burning of a Quran outside a mosque in Stockholm Wednesday, which marked Eid al-Adha, a major Islamic holiday. Swedish media identified the person who burned the Quran as a refugee from Iraq. The act drew widespread condemnation from Muslims around the world. The Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, warned this could pose another challenge to Sweden's bid to join NATO, Turkey and Hungary. Hungary remain the only nations blocking Sweden's path to NATO membership. A Florida jury has found former Parkland School Resource Officer Scott Peterson not guilty on all 11 criminal charges he faced for allegedly failing to protect students during the 2018 mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. 17 people were killed in the massacre, another 17 injured with wounds from the gunman's semi-automatic assault rifle. Peterson faced charges of felony child neglect, culpable negligence and perjury after video showed he remained positioned outside the school for over 40 minutes as approximately 75 gunshots went off. Defense attorneys successfully argued Peterson was unable to tell from which direction the shots were coming from. New York City Mayor Eric Adams and the city council have reached an agreement on a $107 billion city budget that proposes cuts to social and education programs for incarcerated people at Rikers Island Jail Complex. In the final weeks of negotiations, Adams vetoed a package of bills that would have expanded New York's rental assistance program, a move that was widely condemned by activists as the city faces a worsening housing crisis with over 100,000 people living in city shelters for the first time, including tens of thousands of asylum seekers. On Wednesday, Adams was confronted over skyrocketing rents by housing advocate Jeannie Dubnow during a community forum. Why 
Okay, first, if you're going to ask a question, don't point at me and don't do, be disrespectful to me. I'm the mayor of this city, and treat me with the respect I, would, I deserve to be treated. I'm speaking to you as an adult. Don't stand in front like you treated someone that's on the plantation that you own. And civil rights leader Christine King Ferris, the last living sibling of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., has died at the age of 95. Christine King Ferris graduated from Spelman College in 1948, earned two master's degrees from Columbia University. She played a prominent role in the Selma to Montgomery March for voting rights in 1965 and the March Against Fear in Mississippi the following year. After Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968, Christine King Ferris established the King Center for Nonviolent Social Change, along with King's widow, Coretta Scott King. In a statement honoring her legacy, the center said that Dr. King's older sister, Christine King Ferris's life, quote, overflowed with acts of service, love and education that inspired the world for nearly a century. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, the Supreme Court guts affirmative action, ruling Harvard and the University of North Carolina's programs considering race and college admissions are unconstitutional, but allows military academies to continue using affirmative action. Stay with us. Assimilation by Divide and Dissolve. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we spend the hour looking at new U.S. Supreme Court decisions that will have far-reaching implications in the lives of millions of people. We begin with the court's landmark ruling Thursday that gutted affirmative action when it ruled Harvard and the University of North Carolina's programs considering race and college admissions are unconstitutional. The 6-3 to three decision overturns long-standing precedent. The court stops short of barring legacy admissions and will allow military academies to continue using affirmative action. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts assailed race-conscious admissions as elusive, imponderable, and opaque, ruling they violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman appointed to the court, wrote in her dissent, the decision, quote, is truly a tragedy for us all. She added, with let them eat cake obliviousness, today the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. 
Meanwhile, Justice Clarence Thomas, who's now the longest-serving justice on the conservative majority court and is African-American, sided with the majority and read his concurrence from the bench, saying, quote, "...even in the segregated South where I grew up, individuals were not the sum of their skin. While I am painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles so clearly enunciated in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution." Constitution of the United States, that all men are created equal, are equal citizens, and must be treated equally before the law. That was Justice Clarence Thomas Thursday. During the oral arguments for this case, Justice Thomas questioned North Carolina State Solicitor General Ryan Park, who represented the University of North Carolina. I didn't go to racially diverse schools, um, but there were educational benefits. And I'd like you to tell me expressly when a parent sends a kid to college, they don't necessarily send them there to have fun or feel good or anything like that. They send them there to learn physics or chemistry or whatever they're studying. So tell me what the educational benefits are. This comes as PBS Frontline examined Justice Thomas's stance on affirmative action from his time in law school to Thursday's ruling. Frontline reported on how Thomas arrived at Yale Law School as one of 12 black students and interviewed his classmate John Bolton, former national security advisor. He believed that people assumed he was there as a, as a beneficiary of affirmative action and it grated on him. He has this feeling of, oh, I'm around these white students who he senses question his presence at Yale. How is it that you, not just you, Clarence Thomas, but you, all you black students are here? Is it because of merit or is it because of affirmative action? Today, we begin today's show with a roundtable discussion on the Supreme Court's restriction of consideration of race in college admissions, effectively overturning decades of court precedent. Wisdom Cole, NAACP National Director of Youth and College Division, is with us. Janelle Wong is Director of Asian American Studies, Professor of American Studies in Government and Politics at the University of Maryland. Her piece for the Los Angeles Times, Affirmative Action, Isn't Hurting Asian Americans, Here's Why That Myth Survives. And Mariana Hossa, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, founder of Futuro Media, host of Latino USA, co-host of the podcast In the Thick. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Wisdom Cole, Let's begin with you. The Supreme Court has gutted affirmative action in colleges and universities around the country. Oh, well, not in military academies. But can you overall respond? You know, this was a devastating decision. You know, a rogue court bowed down to an extremist minority influence that's going to impact the next generation of thought leaders and Americans. You know, in this moment in time, we need to see our colleges, universities, and even corporations commit to diversity no matter what. And if you can talk further about the significance of this decision and what has puzzled many, that while <clears throat> Chief Justice, who read the decision out for the, ma the majority, um, said that this doesn't apply—this cannot apply anymore to colleges. This actually, by the way, goes into effect in 2028, uh, 25 years after an affirmative action decision in 2003 uh, that was authored by the Republican Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, um, that this 
applies to colleges and universities, but not to military academies, where he saw value in officer diversity, the idea of fine for the barracks, but not the boardroom? Yeah, you know, the same value that we have in making sure that we are having diversity in our military, we have to have that same value for higher education, because oftentimes higher education is the access to the halls of power, right? We want to make sure that our colleges and universities truly reflect America when it comes to diversity of thought. You know, we need to make sure that we have some of the most diverse minds thinking about the best solutions to some of the most difficult problems that we are facing in America today. And if we are removing that access for diverse students to have that space in place in higher education, then we are not meeting the mark and we're going to miss the moment and we're not going to be able to solve the problems that are coming our way. You wrote in social media, our future depends on racial equity and diversity in higher education. The SCOTUS affirmative action decision has put us on a path to resegregate our educational system. Can you explain? You know, this decision is going to have impacts for generations to come. And when we think about the way in which young people have the options and choices to go to different colleges and universities, we shouldn't think that the gutting of affirmative action is now an influence or a push for young people just to go to HBCUs. Yes, we need to highly invest in our HBCUs and our MSIs and ensure that young people have access to those places and spaces. But young people need to have options and choices to go to whatever universities they want to see. I think it's important for us to understand that we cannot be on a path to resegregate higher education as we know it today, because that is effectively rolling back the rights that are being fought for each and every single day. I want to turn to Janelle Wong, uh, who's director of Asian American Studies, professor of American Studies in Government and Politics at the University of Maryland. You wrote a piece with the great writer Viet Thanh Nguyen titled, Affirmative Action Isn't Hurting Asian Americans. Here's why that myth survives. Now, this is extremely significant for people to understand where this case came from. If you can talk about the students for fair admissions, this done supposedly to to stop discrimination against Asian Americans? Well, this is an extremely disappointing ruling, especially because, as you say, a false narrative about an Asian American penalty was used to target one essential tool, affirmative action, that helps open up doors to diversity and opportunities for education. And that is the group suing Harvard is intentionally went to Asian Americans to provide cover for its white supremacist agenda. And there's evidence that the person who brought this case, Edward Bloom, actually went to an open dinner and said, I need to find an Asian American plaintiff. And many Asian Americans, certainly not all, but way too many fell for the trap. Civil rights lawyer Mark Rosenbaum gets it right. Race blind is blind to systemic racism. And the truth is that the lower courts found no evidence of racial discrimination against Asian Americans. Not one single Asian American student testified to racial discrimination. Not one single Asian American came forward because they were rejected due to affirmative action. It is important to keep in mind that despite the headlines, the consideration of race in admissions is not banned in totality. Affirmative action is gutted, severely weakened, but colleges can ask students to discuss in their essays how race shapes their lives. 
this is permissible. So it's also important, I think, that the ruling also applies only to the higher education context, not to other programs such as minority contracting programs. I want to go to Christine Lee. Uh, Democracy Now! reached her last night. She just graduated from Harvard in May. She was the head of the Harvard Korean Association, which is one of 25 Harvard student and alumni organizations that filed an amicus brief in support of college admissions policies that foster diversity. My name's Christine Lee. I'm a recent graduate from Harvard College and former co-president of the Harvard Korean Association, or HKA. I assumed leadership of HKA while the amicus brief preparations were underway with the Legal Defense Fund through the NAACP. I already felt rather strongly, I think, about the importance of building diverse educational environments and understanding how affirmative action played a critical role in that. But I think seeing the collective efforts from other student organizations in advocating for this cause was the greatest privilege. I can only speak to my own experiences as one student, an Asian American woman at Harvard, but I can say with full confidence that those who subscribe to the widely publicized view of what it means to quote unquote deserve a position at an Ivy League institution what it means to champion, quote unquote, merit-based admissions. They haven't met the incredible students, especially students of color. I was lucky enough to call my peers at Harvard. I, I mean, I didn't know the test scores or GPA of every student I sat next to in class or every student I ate meals with in the, in the dining hall. But what I did know was that their unique stories, the stories that they had to share, they enhanced my own life and journey in a very singular way. And I truly believe that universities have something of an obligation to create rich, diverse, unique learning environments in this way. And I also believe that's an obligation not only to their students and their university, but to the greater public as well. I think this is on my mind a lot more just as a recent graduate, but I can imagine the implications that the recent Supreme Court decision will have reaching into the professional world as well. Legal experts will definitely know far more on this subject than me, but I can't help but feel like there's a likely danger of us seeing fewer people of color going into academia as professors, fewer people of color going into medicine, law, environmental policy. And I worry that those vital perspectives are in danger of fading away. If not right away, then definitely over time. You were just listening to and watching Christine Lee, uh, just graduated from Harvard University, former head of the Harvard Korean Association. And Professor Wong, what's so interesting about this is that really her comments concur with the majority of Asian Americans in the country. Uh, Pew Poll just found um, that the majority of Asian Americans favor affirmative action. So talk more deeply about who the organization is that brought this lawsuit that ended up in the Supreme Court? The organization is called Students for Fair Admissions. And that organization is led by Ed Bloom, who is a conservative white male who has 
gone on the attack for race-conscious programs beyond affirmative action. Affirmative action is one of a suite of policies that seek to uh, consider race to ensure racial equality. So Ed Bloom successfully brought a case um, against uh, the Shelby v. Holder case, which gutted the Voting Rights Act. The, he has also tried to undermine immigrant voting rights. And so he had brought this case um, against, uh, brought a case against affirmative action through to uh, the University of Texas. And his key plaintiff there was Abigail Fisher, a white woman. When that was not successful, he purposely sought out an Asian American plaintiff, again, because it provides not only cover for his white supremacist agenda, but also because Asian Americans, uh, there is a narrative about Asian Americans facing a penalty in college admissions. That narrative is very powerful, even though it was adjudicated thoroughly in the lower courts and the courts with hundreds and hundreds of pages of evidence, statistical modeling, and testimony from Asian American students who supported affirmative action that the lower courts found there was no intentional discrimination uh, against Asian American students. Mm. I want to bring Maria Hinojosa into this discussion. Um, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, said, for too long, universities have concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges, um, bested skills built or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Um, you have Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the court's first Latina, writing in dissent, the decision rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. And, of course, you have um, uh, Justice Jackson um, saying, though she had to recuse herself from the Harvard case because of her involvement with Harvard, uh, weighed in and the North Carolina case, um, talked about um, deciding that um, uh, she wrote—let uh, me see if I can find uh, her quote—she said, deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. Maria, your response? Uh, thanks, Amy. This is um, it is a historic day in our country, and yet it is not shocking. Um, in many ways, as I'm listening to to the reporting that's coming up, I mean, and this this is for me kind of writ large, which is actually how this Supreme Court will be devalued in the rest of the country because of decisions like this. That's a that's a broad structural issue, right? Where you have a country that says the Supreme Court does not represent us nor does it represent the majority opinion in the United States. And so that, to me, is, is of concern, because, as you know, I wasn't born in this country, and there's this kind of images for immigrants that we hold the Supreme Court in this kind of esteem. Well, we're seeing through that. As you point out, the fact that they're saying it's okay for the barracks. We'll take your bodies and use them for war. By the way, if you're an immigrant uh, or even undocumented, the possibilities of getting into the military um, ease your road in this country. So the pathway to military is completely open and the pathway to legacy, which is essentially, if we're going to be honest in our country, white supremacy. Now, I'm a professor. I've been in academia for a decade now. And I will tell you, 
that what the data shows uh, is that a Latinos and Latinas have the highest rate of going from high school to college at this point. Uh, so there's there's hard data there. And I have met college presidents, Amy, who have told me we have a financial plan for the, you know, this small independent liberal arts college in the Midwest. And I was like, well, what's your financial plan? We're making sure that we're getting every single Latino that we can to come here. It's a market decision. It's a business decision that colleges and universities are going to be faced with because look at the demographics of our country. It is unsustainable if you're only uh, accepting white legacy students. That's not sustainable. So I'm trying to bring a different analysis. I understand everything, the shock, the horror, the disgust, the rage, the disappointment. But I'm also, I want to make sure that our kids understand that this is not, this cannot stop them. Cannot stop them. All of us on this on this call have, and you as a white woman, Amy, we have gone through not just microaggressions, frontal aggressions. It makes us stronger. It makes us understand exactly what we represent in this country, what kind of country we want to have. So this, I'm going to quote Dolores Huerta, right? This is a moment to organize. This is a moment to build solidarity. And this is a moment to tell our young people, you got this. We are behind you. And by the way, you have power in this conversation. Do not cede your power. Do not give up because we need you. And it's very important for me to continue to reiterate this message. Do not take this as a defeat. We've been defeated so many times in this country and we're not going to give up. There's another option. We cannot give up and just say, okay, affirmative action. What, what do we give up on what? We're going to double down because the future of this country, as we know, and I think that this is central to this decision, is increasingly not white. That is at the, 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 the core of what we're talking about. But that's just data. That is the future of this country. Mariana Jose, you've also um, been very vocal about the lack of diversity in newsrooms. After the Supreme Court affirmative action decision, the award-winning uh, journalist, reveal investigative journalist Aura Bagado, said on Twitter, universities will soon look like newsrooms. If you can respond to that, and also, I keep um, going back to this issue of John Roberts saying, we're going to carve out military academies because there is value in officer diversity. And this whole issue of uh, they can go to the barracks, but when it comes to the boardroom and other places and civil society in this country, uh, they're going to stand firm, these conservative justices, and say no to affirmative action. It's right in front of us, Amy. You know, there isn't—we don't have to pull the wool off of anybody's eyes. They are saying it clearly. And to me, doubling down on the question of legacy, which is legacy is fine, but and legacy, is, it is so clear what is happening. And this is why, again, the horror, not just disappointment, the horror of this Supreme Court, right? And I think about Sonia Sotomayor and Kitanji Brown having to, to sit with these so-called colleagues. And yes, everybody, by the way, should watch that frontline documentary on Clarence Thomas, because in... I understood that people, you know, I was the first Latina hired at NPR, right? I was one of very few Latinas at Barnard College, where I'm now a professor. Um, I have been that one, that first one. And so that kind of, what are you doing here? 
always, it's just been a, a, a part of my life. And again, for the young people. So what you do is you, you internalize that and you say, and this is part of my struggle, right? To be the best possible. Again, I know people don't want to hear this, or you know, you've got to be the best possible, but that is the name of the game in the United States of America, where white supremacy is trying to hold on as much as possible. Again, for Latinos and Latinas, very important. And this is a very important moment for their understanding of where they put their alliances, right? This is not, and, and we have to talk about this, where Latinos and Latinas can easily identify as white because it's, it's privilege. This is a moment to understand solidarity and what this means for the future of our country, working together for true representation. Wisdom Cole, um, <clears throat> if you can talk about the kind of organizing that's going around now, I mean, with these affirmative action decisions, you always see NAACP out in front of the Supreme Court. Um, you have, for example, a University of California that outworld affirmative action years ago. Uh, people of color, particularly uh, the Latinx population and the black population, um, their representation being gutted in the UC college system. How are people organizing right now? You know, I myself am a graduate of the University of California, Santa Cruz, and we consistently saw less and less black folks um, enrolled in those universities, but even those who were enrolled in those universities um, were not graduating, right? You know, the retention level and the work necessary to ensure that young people of color, young black people were retained at these institutions of power um, was not there. And so we had to institute student outreach programs where we made sure that we were actually working to outreach to young people who are interested in coming to the university, but also making sure there were supports on campus to ensure that they stay at that university and are supported and not facing the micro and macro aggressions that happen at these predominantly white institutions. So across the nation now, we are really pushing and telling universities and colleges to commit to diversity no matter what. That looks like instituting outreach and retention programs. That looks at looking at debt-free college options. That looks at making sure that the student population is aware of what they are doing to contribute to white supremacist culture and creating a society and creating a campus culture that is truly about diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, in this moment in time, young people are looking for solutions. They're looking for answers. Young people are scared. Young people are thinking about their future. They're thinking about their um, nephews. They're thinking about their sisters, their brothers, the generations that are to come who are going to be entering those college spaces in the next couple of years. In this moment in time, we have to set up the structures that are going to allow those young people not just to survive on campus, but to thrive on campus. And we have to all do our part. And so that means making sure that we are working hand in hand with these universities making sure there's guidance and making sure that young people are at the front of this movement and that we are uplifting the voices of the most marginalized. And Wisdom, what about the issue of class or income as a factor in admission? And this goes directly with the decision today of the Supreme Court on student debt. You know, we have to understand that the decision around affirmative action and decision around Biden's student loan forgiveness program are not mutually exclusive. You know, if the Supreme Court strikes down Biden's uh, student loan plan today, you know, like I said, effectively, we are on a pathway to resegregate uh, education as we know today, but also declare that the American dream is dead. You know, higher education is the pathway to economic mobility in this country. And so it's absolutely important that we understand all the factors that contribute to a young person entering into higher education today. 
we have to make sure that there is pathways to ensure that they are successful and not barriers that are going to deter them from being a part of these institutions. You know, again, we want to make sure that we are promoting diversity of thought. We are promoting diversity of ideology. We're promoting diversity of experience. All of those things are necessary to contribute to a thriving society in America today. We have gone through so much over the past couple of years. We can't forget all the things that we learned in 2020 um, facing the, heart, the horrors of the murder of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, of Ahmaud Arbery. You know, America is in a period of time where we are in a social awakening. It's important that we continue that work and not roll back those rights that we have received and making sure that we are promoting young people in those places and spaces to ensure that they have access to the halls of power. Wisdom Cole, I want to thank you for being with us, NAACP National Director of Youth and College Division, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Maria Inahosta, founder of Futuro Media. And we want to thank Professor Janelle Wong, Director of Asian American Studies at University of Maryland. Next up, today the Supreme Court is issuing two more decisions on student debt and whether businesses with religious objections can refuse to offer their services for same-sex weddings. Look at how both cases were brought by right-wing groups that are based on questionable evidence. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, the Supreme Court issues two more decisions, including one brought by a Colorado wedding website designer who wants to be allowed to refuse service to same-sex couples. Lori Smith filed a lawsuit with help from the right-wing Alliance Defending Freedom as part of the group's ongoing attacks on the rights of LGBTQIA people. Smith said a Colorado law that bars businesses from refusing to sell a product to gay couples is a violation of her right to free speech as someone who opposes same-sex marriage. But new reporting shows Smith never once made a wedding website, and a key document in the case may be fake— For more, we're joined by Melissa Gira Grant, staff writer at The New Republic. Her new piece is headlined, The Mysterious Case of the Fake Gay Marriage Website, The Real Straight Man and the Supreme Court. Okay, Melissa, lay it out for us. Tell us what you discovered about the case the Supreme Court is ruling on today. Your story, just to start there. Um, so in 2016, this website designer named Lori Smith, whose business is called 303 Creative, she believed that a Colorado anti-discrimination ordinance that protects people from discrimination, among other things, um, from discrimination based on sexual orientation, she believed that that precluded her from entering into the wedding website business. Now, she has never created a wedding website 
for anybody, and including a same-sex couple. So in the course of making this argument, she claimed, you know, two things. One, that this law meant that she couldn't post an announcement on her website saying that she wouldn't make these websites for any couple that wasn't in a biblical marriage that she approved of. And additionally, in a later filing in that original case in 2016, she claimed that an actual same-sex couple sought to have her build a website for them. That an inquiry, it doesn't seem that it was a legitimate inquiry, but it remained in the case. It came up in the district court ruling that ruled against her. It came up in their appeal. It's even been included in filings to the Supreme Court and was referenced by her attorneys, Alliance Defending Freedom, who are a Christian nationalist law project. They said, hey, she's had an actual inquiry. So this is a case that you know has some relevance. But Before this inquiry became um, a subject of debate, it hadn't really been reported out until um, I was able to reach the person who allegedly made the inquiry. Um, And I want to point out, this is unbelievable. It's like seven years later, right, Melissa? I mean, this case was brought in 2016. (laughs) You're a general reporter and you just decide to look at the documents of this case the Supreme Court is now weighing. Yeah, I'm I'm just sort of like shrugging and shifting in my seat because like, yes, I've covered the Supreme Court. I've covered cases that I spent months of my life on. This is one that, you know, came up in the course of reporting on anti-LGBTQ issues, which is mostly what I do. And, you know, I just saw this phone number in a filing and I thought, well, let's call this guy. Right. Let's see if this is a, a real inquiry. And, you know, again, like Wait, you called the guy who supposedly, <laughs> according to the documents, is the guy who asked her to make a website for his gay wedding. So but there was a name, yeah. there was a phone number and address. And you call the man in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, well, he's not in Colorado. I learned that right away. Um, you know, his it is his real a real person's name. It is a real person's phone number. It is a real person's email address. It is a real person's website. But when I called that real person, and it wasn't hard to reach him. He was happy to talk to me. He's a very reasonable, nice guy who had no idea that his information was in this case. And he had never heard about it from another reporter. No one had ever called him to check this inquiry out, which would suggest also that the attorneys in this case did not reach out to him to verify this. It suggests that, you know, once it made it to the Supreme Court, it was just sort of established as assumed fact that there was a genuine inquiry here. Um, And again, just to underline, like, this is not the sole piece of evidence they're bringing the case on, but the case itself was already about fake like a uh, maybe someday a gay couple would ask her to make a website for them. But let's be clear just, on this man. Yeah. Uh, he is married to a woman, has a child and had no plans yeah. to have a gay marriage and never, he said, uh, submitted any request to this woman who doesn't make marriage websites to make him a marriage web, a gay no. marriage website. Not at all. And, you know, I looked into his background. It seems credible. I've been talking with him on and off since the, the first phone call I made to him on Tuesday. Um, You know, he he's appalled by this. You know, he is progressive. He supports abortion rights. He was horrified to hear that the group that was bringing this was one of the groups that helped undo Roe versus Wade. Um, He doesn't want any part of the spotlight. And he had no idea that he had been pulled into this case, that somebody posing as him, in truth, pulled him into this case. And is there any evidence that the Supreme Court has found what you did on Tuesday? I have no idea. 
honestly. You know, um, I have to give some credit to Justice Sotomayor, who in oral argument got into the nitty gritty of, well, hold on, hold on. Like, what websites are you forbidden from making? Like, let's look into your actual brief. And it was through that question that I found this inquiry in the brief. Inquiry didn't come up in oral argument. It wasn't a subject of back and forth in the filings ahead of oral argument. So, you know, I don't know that this inquiry would have ever been decisive in what the Supreme Court decides. But for me, it's just it's so indicative of all of the questions and concerns people have had about this court and the legitimacy of this court. And so tell us what this group, the Alliance Defending Freedom or ADF, is that brought this case that's now being weighed by the Supreme Court. So ADF started in the 1990s. Um, They're really invested in this project that we would now call Christian nationalism. They believe that Christians have a right to decide the way that this country and its laws function. They are, you know, fundamentally opposed to the separation of church and state. And so a lot of their cases kind of came from that place. Um, They've been very successful in getting cases before the Supreme Court. People may have uh, heard of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which is kind of similar to this one. Um, But at least in that case, there was an actual gay wedding and there was an actual gay wedding cake that was at issue. Like here, there is no wedding. There is no website. Um, It's troubling that a group that's pushing this agenda, uh, attacking queer and trans people, you know, they're behind the anti-trans laws that we've seen pop up by the dozens across the country over the last few years. If they, all they have to bring is, you know, fantasies of things that gay people someday may do, what does that say um, about their project? And what does it say about the court that they're willing to entertain something that's based on something so flimsy? And fascinatingly, lower courts rejected it. Melissa Gira Grant, I want to thank you for being with us, staff writer at The New Republic. We'll link to your piece, The Mysterious Case of the Fake Gay Marriage Website, The Real Straight Man and the Supreme Court. And we're going to end today's show looking at the other decision the Supreme Court is issuing today to decide the fate of President Biden's student debt relief plan. We're joined by David Dayan executive director, executive editor of The American Prospect, where he has a piece headlined, The Student Loan Cases Unwilling Participant. David, coming out of what we just heard with Melissa around the gay, the fake gay marriage website, uh, talk about what you found in this other Supreme Court case. Yeah, it's a remarkable amount of similarity here, really. Uh, So in the student loan case, uh, the key issue is standing. Is someone injured by the fact that people are getting uh, this debt relief from the government on their student loans? And the state of Missouri, uh, along with several other states, brought uh, this this lawsuit. And they they claim that uh, because there's a thing called the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, which is a servicer, they, they do the day-to-day operations on the loans, uh, that because they will be harmed, allegedly, actually, they won't be harmed, but because they will allegedly be harmed by losing uh, a, a number of uh, student loans to service, then uh, because they owe the state of Missouri money, they might not be able to pay it back. And uh, there are just enormous amounts of reasons why this is problematic. First of all, uh, the loan fund that uh, allegedly the uh, Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority won't be able to pay back to the state of Missouri, they haven't made a payment on it in the last 15 years. 
and internal documents show that they have no intention of paying into this fund. Uh, the second thing is uh, internal emails have shown that the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority had nothing to do with this case, didn't file it, didn't solicit it, uh, didn't know it was happening, and didn't know they were being used as a substitute for standing for the state of Missouri uh, until they read about it in news reports. And there are internal emails between employees of Mohala saying, we were opposed to this move, but we couldn't do anything about it. The Missouri State Attorney General needed to claim that our borrowers were harmed uh, so that uh, they could have standing in the case. So, uh, you know, a, a real similarity of uh, we, we talk about the Supreme Court's corruption uh, in terms of, you know, going on junkets and things like this. But uh, I mean, maybe a deeper corruption is the fact that they seem to not check the basic facts in these in these various cases, and they're ruling on things that uh, uh, aren't aren't legitimate in some way. How are these not being fact checked? <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it really talk it, about how you it found gets, it. Uh, talk about how you well, found uh, it. it. It was through state sunshine laws. Uh, the, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority. It's called Mohela. Sort of Mohela is sort of a, a, a state instrumentality. And, and they, uh, in fact, the only way that the state of Missouri could get information from Mohella is that they had to use state sunshine laws to extract that information. And uh, so uh, advocates at the Student Borrower Protection Center did the same thing, looking up whether they were talking about this case. And they found this tranche of emails uh, that shows that they had nothing to do about it. And in one case, uh, one employee uh, asks, you know, are we involved in this case? Are we the bad guys is is the direct quote uh, that uh, the Mahela employee makes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a situation where uh, by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, uh, they 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 sort of assume facts, as as Melissa said, they assume the facts as as legitimate. Uh, but in this case, you know, if if the court, in fact, rules to deny 43 million borrowers uh, reductions in their loan balances, they'll be doing it based on a standing argument on behalf of a plaintiff that was a complete unwilling participant in this case. And if the court does rule that way, can President Biden uh, still cancel student debt? A lot of uh, advocacy groups say that uh, the president could use other means. Right now, they are using the authority granted under something called the HEROES Act, uh, which allows them in the cases of, of emergency like the pandemic to ensure that borrowers aren't made worse uh, by those, those, uh, that situation. Uh, they could also use the 1965 Higher Education Act uh, and its Compromise and Settlement Authority to uh, reduce loan balances uh, certainly remains to be seen if uh, the Supreme Court sort of slaps down the president, whether uh, he would be willing uh, to use another authority to uh, try to do it uh, in, in a different way. David Dayan, before we end the show, I want to ask you about another SCOTUS point. And for people who are not familiar, SCOTUS is Supreme Court of the United States. 
As we reported today in headlines, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito leased land to a fossil fuel company for oil and gas exploration around the same time the firm stood to benefit from a major environmental case before the high court. The Intercept has just reported that Justice Alito did not recuse himself from the case, even though his family stood to profit from the outcome. And he ended up writing the five to four majority opinion in Sackett versus Environmental Protection Agency, which gutted protections for U.S. wetlands under the Clean Water Act. At the time, his wife, Martha Ann Baumgartner Alito, had an agreement with the firm Citizens Energy to earn revenue from any oil and gas produced on her land in Oklahoma, which she inherited from her father. And, of course, this following the bombshell report in ProPublica that found that Justice Alito took this undisclosed luxury fishing vacation with Republican megadonor Paul Singer in 2008, then later ruled in Singer's favor in several cases. Singer, a major donor to the Manhattan Institute, the Republican think tank that supports blocking student debt relief. Members of the Debt Collective demanding Alito recuse himself from today's Supreme Court ruling on President Biden's plan to give 40 million student borrowers up to $20,000 each in debt relief. Your response to these latest revelations, which, of course, uh, follow the revelations uh, around Clarence Thomas and his relationship with the billionaire donor Harlan Crow. Well, I mean, the fact is that the Supreme Court is really a, a, a rogue institution. It, it's, it's an example of self-regulation. Uh, uh, justices decide on their own whether or not to recuse. Uh, the documents that they file, uh, while journalists can can scrutinize those documents and and maybe find other cases where they didn't they didn't disclose certain gifts or other other uh, uh, personal uh, financial uh, windfalls. Uh, it, there's basically no sanction for it. These are lifetime appointments. I mean, this this is what arrogance looks like in uh, in 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 uh, manifested form. And uh, there's there's nothing much that uh, the public can do about it except bring pressure to bear. Uh, and I think that some of the rulings that we've seen this year, which have been a little more moderate, uh, could be a result of the legitimate sea crisis sort of at the at the heart of the Supreme Court. And it's good that uh, journalists and, and other people are paying more attention to uh, this circumstance. But it's it's really frustrating. Well, of course, we'll continue to follow all of these issues. David Dayen, executive editor of The American Prospect, his piece will link to the student loan case's unwilling participant. Tune in Monday and Tuesday to Democracy Now!'s holiday specials. On Monday, we'll be bringing you the voice of the late, great Daniel Ellsberg, the whistleblower. And on Tuesday, we'll bring you James Earl Jones reading Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is Your Fourth of July and other voices of a people's history of the United States. Happy birthday to Isis Phillips. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermin Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Ravi Karen, Hani Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, McGinley, Gary Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.